Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, the head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at All About Women in 2020. In these dark and challenging times, who hasn't thought of escaping the patriarchy to go deep into the bush and live in a feminist utopia? In the 1970s, this kind of behaviour was all the rage and one of the most famous and enduring women-only communes was in northern New South Wales and it became known as Amazon Acres. With a policy of no men, no meat and no machines, these pioneering women built their own houses and created their own society, far, far away from the male gaze. You're about to hear from some of the women who founded and lived at Amazon Acres, talking about what it was like, why it was important and what we can learn from the experience today. The session was hosted by Fenella Suter. Good afternoon, and um, happy International Women's Day. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to this this afternoon's topic, uh, sorry, this afternoon's session on what I think is a very topical issue in a time of Me Too and climate change. Is a feminist utopia possible? We'll be looking at a very remarkable moment in... Oh, I can hear some laughs already coming there. (laughs) We'll be looking at a remarkable moment in history when one community of women tried to get away from a male-dominated world and create something new and more sustainable. How did that go? I'm Fenella Suter, and I'll be moderating today. Just to let you know, we'll be in discussion for about 40 minutes with our panel, and uh, then we'll be going to questions when you get to participate. There'll be about 20 minutes of Q&A. There'll be people in the aisles with microphones, so when the time comes, if you could just make your way to them and queue if necessary. Uh, There'll also be questions through, you can put online through your phone. Um, You go to Slido, which I believe is the link up there, and submit your question on your phone. Meanwhile, though, it'd be great if all the phones were turned to silent, but you don't have to turn them off. Now, By way of background, I'm a journalist, and last year with co-producer Cathy Gollan, I made a program for ABC Radio, for the History Listen on RN, about Amazon Acres, an all-female community that started in the early 70s. Cathy and I were fascinated by this attempt to escape the patriarchy, the mainstream, capitalism, the male gaze, prejudice, among other things. The place drew all sorts of women, many of them dreaming of a freer, more sustainable way of living in nature, in a remote spot in northern New South Wales. But was it possible to live without men and hair dryers and shops? Oh, well, hair dryers. Should you? (laughs) How did the women get along? (laughs) And what's happened to that idea of women's lands and utopias so alive as a possibility back then? They're just some of the things I hope we'll be touching on today. Now, let me introduce our panel. At the end, Dr. Karen Higgs. Karen is a writer and, and historian. Yes, thank you. And much of her work is focused on the conflict between economic growth and nature. Again, a very topical subject to be looking at these days. She's here today, however, as the woman who found that piece of land, a thousand acres to begin with on a mountaintop, and helped kickstart the community. It was called The Mountain, or more fondly, Amazon Acres. In the middle, Dr. Sophie Robinson. Sophie's a... (laughs) (laughs) Sophie's a historian of Australian feminist and lesbian communities. Sophie did her PhD on the history of lesbian activism in Australia from the 1970s to the 90s, a strangely neglected topic considering how bold and bold she it was, having read some of Sophie's work. Um, (laughs) As part of that PhD, she interviewed women from Amazon Acres. And beside me, Amber Jackson. (laughs) Who spent much of her childhood on the women's lands, so I'm sure she'll be bringing a very different perspective to this discussion. So a warm welcome to you all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just before we begin, let's get a a bit of a visual sense of the community. Now, many of you will perhaps have lived there yourselves or visited, but for those who haven't, I think it's uh, interesting to to sort of get a picture of it. The music you'll hear is a song recorded by uh, some of the women back in the day. 
So our thanks to Karen, who has put together these incredible images of women constructing life on the mountain. Those young women look so strong. <laughs> so strong and optimistic and capable. And I love the way they rejoiced in their bodies so freely. Maybe we might all do our DIY like that now. <laughs> um, I'm going to begin with you, Karen, because that's kind of where it all began, in a, in a way. We see how rugged that place was. Um, the only, you know, much of it was bush. There was a lot of rainforest. The only buildings at first were the two tumble old loggers' huts. And it was a steep 12-kilometre drive to get there, which you may have noticed Karen tackled in that well-known off-road vehicle, a VW Beetle. <laughs> a lot of walking. <laughs> or walking. Yeah. Why that remote spot and what was your particular vision for it? Well, there were various strands. I mean, in the first place, I went to England via, via um, India and, and uh, overland, and I met the counterculture, and I learned these ideas about aiming for self-sufficient communes. So that entered my head around 1970. Secondly, I read the book called The Limits to Growth in 1972 at the beginning, and I thought, yes, we have to get this done pretty soon because everything's going to collapse. Now, I was wrong about how soon it was going to collapse, but I think we're <laughs> in the process now. <laughs> um, and finally, uh, towards the end of 72, just before I came back, I met Jenny and, and Rabina, who were already immersed in the London Women's Liberation Movement and who introduced me to the ideas gradually. I, I only... I didn't do much of it in London, but when we came back to Melbourne, the whole thing took off, and that's why uh, this place uh, was, was, uh, was made for women. I was interested, because I think in the manifesto you wrote at the time, the radical uh, lesbian manifesto, you said that it wasn't, wasn't about women achieving equality, it was about achieving liberation. Was that part of this, this dream? 
Yes, I mean that was what. Look, I was part of the a part of the movement that wanted to do both those things. Really, that it wasn't just about it was achieving liberation, but for me too, it was about women moving into having authority in society at large as well. So, both. Hmm. Okay. Now that was your way of seeing the land, and you imagined it as a sort of self-sufficient farm. Uh, what were some of the other vision? What were the other, some of the other sort of visions or dreams that people had for it? Because not everybody agreed, did they? Right. Oh well. I mean, there were a lot of women who look. There were a whole range. There were women who came because they were running away from horrendous husbands. A few. Um, there were women who came. Um, straight women who were really part of the movement and who wanted to support an all-women's all institution that would also be a refuge. Um, and then there were, particularly amongst, uh, I guess, there was a whole lot of separatist women, mostly lesbians, who wanted a place that was uh, not only safe, but, um, but was almost symbolic of our separate existence. So, but, but across all of that, there was a huge range of... Uh, so it, it, it went from people who didn't want even... who didn't want a newborn baby boy anywhere near the place to people who were quite happy to have their father visit for a look at what they were doing. So it was a huge range mm. on the men question. Well, yeah, that brings us to... I'm <laughs> just going to move on to Sophie, but let's talk about, you know, the sessions called No Men, No Meat, No Machines. Yep. Can you explain what that was about? All right, well, the No Men thing was really... was foundational, right? But the No Meat, there was really no problem with meat at all for the first five or six years. We ate our lamb chops with a, with, 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 uh, a plum, but... Um, <laughs> But, but there were a group of women who came from overseas around, I don't know, 1980, something like that, and um, they had very, very strict views about meat, and I can actually remember lamb chops being thrown around the hut on one occasion. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we wanted to go on eating our lamb chops, me and, me and my... You know, yeah. colleagues. So, and about machines too. We we didn't have any machines at the beginning, as you saw in the slideshow, um, because we uh, didn't have the know-how. We didn't have the money, but we were not against machines per se. And after all, the VW was a machine. So. But again, these same women who came from overseas felt that uh, a women's place should not have any vestiges of male culture, and that could be pretty much anything. At one time, nails and windows were also... No nails? No, no nails. No, we were supposed to make the mortises and tenons and yeah. put, fit it all together. Um, anyway, so, but... <laughs> um, we, got a, we got a generator quite soon after those set of photos were taken and we've used power tools since then quite happily and really the no, no meat, no machines has become a dead issue for us on the mountain. But the other places that formed, I'm not quite sure how strict they are on those ideological things, but they're very strict about men. Well, maybe we can go to Sophie now because, you know, on the face of it, you think, oh, no, nail, it's, it, it can seem extreme. But it was about fashioning a whole other way of thinking about the world, wasn't it? Getting rid of the old and kind of thinking, well, what, what are we going to keep and what are we going to... What's the new vision for this? Can you tell us a bit about the time of, you know, the 70s, what was happening there? Yeah, I think that those, those ideas of no men, no meat, no machines were part of a much yeah, broader politics of utopianism in the 70s, in the early 70s, this is the time of the election of Gough Whitlam, 23 years of a Liberal federal government end, um, the rise of, 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 <laughs> of Labor. Um, of, it's, it's a very symbolic uh, time, a lot of political, cultural, uh, social change, um, a real groundswell of activism against... Uh, interested in, in social justice in a whole range of ways, but especially in things like environmentalism, in fighting for the, the, the rights um, and well-being of, of sexual minorities, of, of women. Um, this is something that's happening globally, and I think younger, younger generations are pushing against the traditions of their parents' generations of um, very, very harmful practices and structures of patriarchy and capitalism that they felt were 
uh, oppressing them, men and women, and a, a, range of, a range of people in society, and pushing against that, and uh, trying to fashion new ways of being and relating, um, and in comes movements like the women's liberation movement, gay liberation. Um, these are sexual liberation movements, personal liberation movements, and they inspire the idea that um, a different future is possible, and for women in particular, um, a much more expansive future beyond just living as, as wives, as mothers, as daughters in relation to men, that there were other options there. How did, can you tell us a little bit about the notion of separatism? Yeah, I think separatism is emerging in a whole range of ways in this time too, um, amongst a range of political groups, but within women's liberation, separatism was about women drawing strength from each other, relying on each other as women, uh, as sisters, um, doing away with notions that they couldn't uh, live uh, without men and actually starting to think about what that could look like for them in their lives. Um, groups like the radical lesbians in Melbourne that I know Karen was a part of, inspired by, um, formed because they wanted to also look at their shared oppression as women uh, and as lesbians, um, as, you know, sort of this an idea of double oppression that they wanted to, to think about and to, um, to do something about. And so separatism, separating off, uh, thinking about their shared experiences together was, was a mm. big part of that time. Yeah. And what do you think people... What do you think... You spoke to some of the women who lived there. What, what did they get from going to the, either visiting the mountain or living there for some time? Ah, a huge range of things. I think a lot of women went to places like the mountain and also other uh, separatist spaces, including in inner city, lesbian, feminist share houses, things like that. Um, they got a sense of a different, a different life. Um, at the mountain, they got a, a way to live and use their bodies in completely different ways. Uh, they had to rely on themselves. They had to learn new skills. Um, one woman I interviewed talked a lot about how her life looked probably that she would be become a teacher and that would have been fine, but instead she went and started a commune in Tasmania and she learnt crayfishing and she learnt how to paint houses and how to fix cars and yeah. that's her that's yeah. that's what it gave her. Because this wasn't the only I mean the, the women the the idea of women's lands was a sort of international idea, wasn't it? And where where else did we see them? Yeah, feminist utopias are popping up all over the world. At, uh, at this point in time, um, inspired by this transnational interest in radical feminism and socialism and environmentalism, uh, similar, similarly Karen's sort of fear of this imminent ecological crisis, um, environmentally sustainable communities are popping up that have these underpinning ideals of feminism and, and often lesbian feminism. So we see in Australia, uh, northern New South Wales, Tasmania, Western Australia, Victoria... There's many, many examples. Right. In yeah. Germany, Wales, yeah, US, and across yeah. the world. Yes. We'll come back to that point because I think it's interesting to see what's, you know, what the legacy is from uh, the women's lands and what's happened to them now because there are some problems with succession and, you know, who will take on this and whether, whether there's still a need for places like this. Mm. So we'll come back to that. Let's talk to you, Anne, because you spent seven years as a child, yeah. between seven and 14, I believe, um, on the lands. What, I mean, looking at those images, what's, what comes back to you? Brings back a lot of memories and I feel like it was just, I mean, it was, I'd visited up there sort of previously a couple of times, so I had a bit of an idea of what the whole moving up onto the land was like, but I do feel like it was sort of, for the children, when you went up there, it was like a kind of, crazy dose of freedom or something like that in that we, you know, just purely because of the, you know, the space and, you know, the countryside, we were kind of left to our own devices a fair bit and, and we were like... Um, to go from being sort of in the inner city and I suppose like inner city where it was quite down in Melbourne where I'd come from had been, you know, quite Normal. sort of... Um, rough sort of areas, I suppose, but um, to go up there, you know, and just, you know, be left to our own devices, you know, I think it was a bit of a shock at first. <laughs> Were you aware that it was different? I mean, did you think, oh, there's no men here? 
Or was that <sighs> something you didn't it have an awareness something, of? No, because I think I'd gone up when I was probably four and five and I, it was probably, if I'd just gone straight up when I was seven, it probably would have then been a more of a kind of shock to me and I would have gone, oh, God, you know, where are all the men? <laughs> where are the men? Um, but it, it was more like I, I think it was something that I was fairly used to anyway. And also I think when I first went up there, it wasn't as strict about there kind of being no men as well. Right. Like I do kind of remember occasion men would come up sometimes, like well, there was Arthur. Oh, help Arthur. Vlogging or something like that. I think it was always it was always a moot point between various groups of us, and there was you know there were many women who just welcomed Arthur getting into his little Land Rover and taking them up the road in the rain when the VWs were bogged. Um, <laughs> Arthur so was a man who lived in a hut by himself at the bottom of the mountain. He lived in a house in Yeah, and uh, there was one picture of Arthur I put in the slideshow. But um, so. Uh, I don't know that there were many, you know, Arthur would come, sometimes we gave him a cup of tea, but I don't think there were many men who actually came and hung about and certainly none who stayed the but, night. But maybe like people like Jono and stuff like that, I guess maybe they weren't necessarily up on the land, but in my mind as like a five or a six or a seven-year-old, it wasn't completely separated so to me. Jono's camp so, was on the river. Yeah, there was still yeah. sort of... <laughs> Some I don't think Jono came up there, though. No. I can't remember him ever How did you... How, what was your education up there? I mean, how were you educated so far? Well, it was um, sporadic, I guess is a good <laughs> word. <laughs> <laughs> so my mum had been a teacher, so she did kind of do some teaching, but it was sort of... I just feel like we... Me especially, and probably most of the kids had a pretty nomadic kind of lifestyle up there. So even if you went to school for a while, often it would be for a short stint. You might go for a month or two, and then even when you went, you would be rocking up at 11am or something like that, and all the other kids would be like, oh, my God, you guys are, you know, actually here. And, Did you, you know, we, we were getting teased a lot. Right. And, um, you know, yeah. as in the podcast, I think... You know, someone said even one of us showed up to school without underpants on once, which was highly, highly shocking, and we were pretty embarrassed as right, well. Yeah. And you said um, you felt normal with all your things on, and that's then you got it. to school. And the women would come and pick us up with their give a girl a spanner, you know, stickers on the <laughs> panel vans and it's lots of crazy hairdos and stuff, so no, we didn't fit in. And you. <laughs> <laughs> Your curriculum actually on the mountain itself, you did learn things there, but it seems pretty random. I heard that Karen, for instance, taught you poker amongst other That's things. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> I did what? Karen taught us poker. Poker? Did you poker. Cards. Oh, poker. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't remember teaching them to play poker, but yeah. it's quite possible. Yeah. I was probably, <laughs> I was probably training them up for double cop. Yeah. <laughs> what else? Or, you know, so, yeah, um, yeah, there was times where different women would sort of take you under their wing and teach you, you know, often their interest, which we always thought was quite hysterical because Hopefully. often, you know, it would be um, cooking or it would be um, art or it would be meditation or it would acrobatics, be... Acrobatics, I think. Yeah, acrobatics or... Well, they're all useful um, things yeah. to know. <laughs> so there was some pretty wild lessons out yeah. in the bush. Let's go um, back to you, Karen, because I'm... Very keen eater. I want to know, how did you feed yourselves up there? I saw some cabbages in the picture and a bit of a vegetable garden. Yep. But how did you manage food? Feed ourselves. <laughs> well, look, um, with difficulty. Um, <laughs> well, the, look, it varied between... I lived there for the first 18 months or so. I was often on my own. So it was... Um, I could go to town and sometimes I could get the car home full of food and that would last me. And then, um, you know, I'd, be, I'd ration it out very, 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 you know, 
in a very disciplined way. Um, <laughs> not everybody did, did they? Could you What's that? About? Not everybody did ration it out. N no, no, no. But so then there was the times when there were great groups who just arrived, possibly with or without food, and then, you know, there was always difficulties in the early years with there being enough food. I remember us buying, going for this place called maybe Campbell's in Sydney, but anyway, this big bulk food place where we would buy, you know, sacks of lentils and rice and oats and, you know, you name it. But then, and then we would go to town and get a box of apples and blocks of cheese. Anyway, those types of things disappeared almost instantaneously on arrival at the mountaintop. So, Correct. anyway, you couldn't... Um, and you used to call that panic eating, didn't you? Panic eating, yes, we called it panic eating. I think I'd be one of panic eaters. This yeah. is not... I think as time went by and, we, and the road was better and we, we had four-wheel drive, eventually we had four-wheel drive, so the problem about getting food there was far, far much easier once we had, uh, had four-wheel drives, yeah. once we had red. Okay. Read the rover. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, this is maybe something Sophie can talk to as well. You know, the idea was to have no hierarchies, no leaders, no rules. How did that go? Talking to me? Oh, well, I would say, um, again, with great difficulty. Um, <laughs> because, well, you know, I would just say, let's go and do this. We need to start the orchard, grab the crowbar, come with me, um, and uh, one or two might. And then, but most most women were not really interested in. I remember Miranda; she was not really interested in going and digging holes and planting anything. And they just weren't in. However, there were then there were another group of women like DQ and Marsha and the other builders, and they were um, absolute. Trojans mm. for the building job. There were a group of us who did the buildings who were all, all you know, uh, well, organised the buildings and there were lots and lots of others who helped us. Um, and in that respect, yes, we were able to achieve what we wanted to, a bit of what we wanted to anyway, at least on the building front. Everyone was on their own timeline though, mm. weren't they? Like, they, if they wanted to dig holes, they wanted to dig holes when they wanted to dig this holes. This is correct. Is and also, if you <laughs> said, we're going to start building at seven, then they might roll in at 11... 12, 1, Lackers. you know, it was, it was, um, and you know, it was the freedom and uh, it, it was the thing about uh, a culture of you do what you like when you want to and, yeah. um, and I suppose many of those women had come from places where there, the, you know, there were so many rules and there was oppression of oh, yes. groups and they just didn't want to be told what yeah. to do, I guess. I think that's the interesting thing is, yeah, how that that uh, commitment to these politics manifested and very creatively and haphazardly at times, but there still is this underlying commitment, certainly from the interviews that I did with women, that, yeah, no hierarchies, especially in the building phases, yeah, with people like DQ who had these particular skills, really trying to be mindful about how they didn't sort of teach other women or but shared those skills or, or at least share without teaching share without not be teaching. too bossy yeah, all yeah. that sort of stuff look yes it was a, a, attempted but in the end we just had to learn from those mm. who knew how to do stuff and uh, it became it was always clear to me that if you wanted quality you had to really learn how to do things and that was how I felt Mm. And some people just really wanted to enjoy being in nature and not necessarily sort of construct things. Is that the impression you got, Sophie, from... I think, yeah, I think uh, talking to Karen, I think I, I, I learned that, yeah, women came with different ideas and ideals about what that space would mean and look like. And I think for some it was a refuge and a very beautiful refuge and space to be in. But the commitment to sustaining that space required a lot. And I think that it wasn't always... Well, not everyone wanted. To, this is not what they wanted to do with their days. Really, a lot of a lot of the women didn't really want to do, be slaving over the um, over the poles and the. Mm. But for the big jobs, we did have really big teams who got together, like putting in the centre pole, which was what a job was that? You know, without any no block, no tackle, nothing like that. But we had Chloe on one end; she was the tallest, and you know, so we slowly, <laughs> gradually, I don't know, got it up to there, and then DQ's saying no, no, or, and, and we staked it there. You know, sort of propped it up there. Anyway, we got. Well, I don't know how. I can't remember how we, but we did. We got yeah, it. That so, was a big communal building called the the big hex. Yeah, hexagon, not for. <laughs> Which is hex. Um, 
And a lot of the women built their own cabins as well, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And so there are lots of other cabins. There's, there's my little hex, um, which is a sort of a little clone. And um, then there's, I don't know, there's Kate's mansion. And then Iggy's got a great, a really great house. Um, Kat's got a great cabin. And then there are other smaller little cabins. I hope I haven't missed anybody out. But anyway, there are other uh, what sort of settlers' cottage-type cabins, yeah. but not built from prefab, but built as, you know, a bit like the, the hut was at the beginning the before start. it met its yeah. end. The hex is important, though, in terms of just the, the values and the, I guess... The hex was meant to be quite sort of circular in form, wasn't the original yes. hope to have a kind of geodesic, geodesic dome type of situation, but it was too hard to make it that round, so a hexagon was the Yes, or to make a circle. It was yeah. too hard to yeah. make a circle. So we settled on a hex, and also I remember DQ telling us that there are very, very wild winds here, which is true, and that the triangulation in the hexagonal shape would stand us in good stead. So and it's still standing, so it's been proved right. Was it fun? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it was, it was so mixed. It was so mixed. But there was a lot of fun at times. Uh, I would say the best parts for me were the building and seeing things, uh, you know, and then and the music. The, at night, the music. We had some spectacular musicians amongst us and singers and stuff. And... Um, the music was absolutely heavenly, so uh, at least even if you'd had a hard day or you'd had a fight with this one or that one, you could always sing at night together. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go, song. That's what we all need. Um, Sophie, you've, what do you think the, the sort of legacy of those lands is and, and does it sort of resonate for, say, women of your generation today? Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, very deeply. I think, for me, I'm a historian of these of these communities, um, so I think I'm invested in a different way, but as a, as a feminist, um, it's, it's very important for me to know about past, I guess, experiments in how to live a feminist life or how to, how to live a very intentional existence that's um, mindful of the environment, of social justice, of... Uh, the celebration of, of women, of minorities, and, um, uh, yeah, safe space for, especially for queer women to be in or, or, or just, you know, anyone that suffers um, uh, discrimination in yeah. society. That, that need for, for refuges and safe spaces is still, there. Is still really strong yeah. And, yeah. and, yeah. Do you think it worked? Do you think it was a success? In Amazon Acres, uh, I think the fact that it's still going and that it's is very um, highlights definitely it's a success. I think it's had a really big impact in the lives of the people that have been involved in it uh, throughout its history, and I think has had a really really positive impact in their lives. Um, I think it shows uh, just the great creativity of Australian feminism at this time and and since. And I think yeah, it's. Very successful yeah. in lots of ways. I should add, for those who don't know, um, it also expanded to other pieces of land, and I think it's now 4,000 acres, am I right? Oh, it it's might be more like three, but, That's yes, a, it's yeah. a very large area. So it's a very big area, area and reasonably contiguous, not, not, not actually joined up at the boundary, but only, only you know, uh, nature reserves pretty and stuff in between. Point. It's pretty yeah. much... Uh, mm. uh, I think if you count the nature reserve, it's about 4,000 acres of... Properly kept land. Yeah. Yes. Fantastic. Um, so, Amber, you, you came out of that at about 14 and, you know, now you're back in the world of men um, <laughs> or with men. How was that for you? It was quite hard at first. I sort of felt like I'd just been... Like, it was a complete culture shock, really, to move down to Sydney and start going to school and everything down here. It... I remember saying to someone the other day, like, I was scared to catch a bus. So it was, yeah, a real shock to the system. I went to an alternative school down here, so I think that probably, like, eased me into the um, education side of things. So one thing I didn't touch on, but I think I would... You know, perhaps it's just a feature of communes generally when a lot of people are on journeys of self-discovery or um, self-examination some way, the... It can be difficult for children. Did you sort of feel there was, you know, there's a line between freedom and, I don't know, almost I neglect? I think, you know, it's a, a hard position to 
talk about, you know, something successful or a failure or that kind of thing to me, I wouldn't ever kind of just say that mm. something was a success yeah. or not a success. Like in terms of children, I think sometimes that becomes a little more complicated because, mm. you know, they are living the sort of realities of those dreams that the women went up there to set up, you know, and it's hard because in hindsight you can you can either be really positive and think, oh, they went there with these open hearts and these really big mm -hmm. dreams and that was important and I totally get why they did it. But then, you know, I also feel like the reality of two, you can be quite harsh about it and go, you know, so dysfunctional at times and sometimes you were hungry weren't you, you yeah actually have we were food. you know and we'd walk around and just go off and like try and find food and sometimes we wouldn't you know but you know then it's kind of as much of that that I remember I also remember the times where you know people would cook for you and look after you and be you know be there for you as oh. well so yeah it's I always kind of sit on the fence with those ones. Yeah, you know, well, it sounds like you're here today. Yeah. Um, I think on the mountain, yeah. we, I, 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 we always made an evening meal. So when the kids were on the mountain, they might have been scrabbling for breakfast and lunch, but there was always... <laughs> they probably were. Right. Probably were. The other day. No, we always... <laughs> sometimes hard to day. see who was going to do the washing up next day, but really... Um, <laughs> I can't remember there ever not being an evening meal during the era when I was living there, you know, with large groups of people. We always did that together. Mm. If you could go back now, Karen, would you do things differently? How would you do things differently? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I would probably... Um, I would probably... Oh, I don't know. I, like, I was young, so, I mean, a bit older than some of the others, but I, I, if I would have had... An, an older mentor who knew something about founding a community and yeah. who knew something about the dangers and pitfalls of the rule-free environment, um, I maybe... I would have probably tried to lay out a few ground rules and then those who didn't like them didn't have to come kind of thing. But, um, alas, uh, it was <laughs> too late. <laughs> and sometimes we only find out by making mistakes. Um, you said that Amazon Acres didn't fall apart, we just wore out. What did you mean by that? Did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't remember saying that. Um, but um, I think it's because... Uh, well, it hasn't fallen apart or worn out, really. Yeah. I mean, we still have one woman who um, who is there a lot of the time and who has a house there and lives there. Um, and, and, you know, goes away to town now, you know, for this and that. And then we have a stream of really loyal members... There's only about 15 or 16 of us left, but um, who come and stay. Often they have their houses. That's right, Sand has also got a lovely cabin, who I forgot to mention. Sorry, Sand. Um, and so, the, you know... It's still there's active. Still, there's been a few younger women And there's also been... As well. recently, younger thanks women to Sand and Mei Ling mainly, and, and other women from the other lands, um, there have been... Yes, in fact, I, I was at... Last October, I went out to the gathering, so-called, <laughs> uh, on the Herland before the fires, and, um, and I think the day I was there, there were 60 women there. Many of them, probably at least 45, were, uh, were under 40. Many under 30. Really yes. lovely young women I met there. And, um, and apparently at the peak it was 85 or something anyway no no so there is like, some interest yeah. among young people so I would say no it's uh, not, not not either okay. if I said that I must have been missing a very very negative yeah. moment Sophie's PhD um, Sophie do you is it something that you would go to now, or you, you and women your age? Um, well, we were going to go. I was going to go. We've been the, trying to get it. Yeah, but the river flooded, and then I, we didn't yes. go. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, Welcome to the, our world. The, yeah. <laughs> to our world. <laughs> um, I, think, I think it is it's somewhere that I would like to go and experience for myself. I think, I think other women my age, other, other people my age are really invested, especially now in communities that are intentional, that are about 
um, actually living with what we have and living by a sort of ethics and values that's inclusive. And I think um, I think there's a lot of interest in that. Maybe maybe not necessarily these lands, but I think um, the younger generation are definitely doing these sorts of things in their own way yeah. in a whole range yeah. of Well, part of the buying this particular land was that was all you could afford as well, wasn't it? There was... What was all we could afford? This piece of land on, on a very oh, mountain top. Oh, yeah. Anyway. I mean, I couldn't afford I, I had 5,000 bucks, so I had a real chunk of money. That was a lot of money in 1972, three. Um, but no, I wasn't, I wasn't after affordable. Um, I was after remote and inaccessible. So... <laughs> <laughs> You, you got you it. Well. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are your happiest memories of the time, Amber? Uh, probably my um, girlfriends that I grew up with and just some of the adventures we had, probably riding and, um, you know, singing round the fire. Mm. A lot of good um, times remembering that. Oh, great. Um, Sophie, anything, well, obviously that we're already coming up for questions, which has gone so fast. Anything you want to say about that, you know, what you see as the future of lands like this? Because I know that one in America, um, oh, yes. which name I can't quite the remember. Huntington. Yeah. It, you know, they're having trouble handing it mm. to, uh, over to anyone. Yeah, I think, well, I think it's going to be difficult because obviously, yeah, as, as Karen's sort of highlighted, it's, there's a lot of... It's a lot of commitment required mm. to continue to look after land like this. Um, uh, yep. I think it's gonna you're gonna require some recruits to do that. I'm not yep. sure <laughs> it's gonna be me, but maybe <laughs> got a few in there. <laughs> um, okay, look, we already seem to be at question time, so I'm going to thank you all for those observations and great insights. It's a, I think it's a really interesting thing that happened and it's it's sort of was surprising to us when we started to make the program that really it hadn't been documented. I mean Sand Hall, who's done this fantastic mm. book on Amazon Acres You Beauty, which is a collected stories from the lands. Great Sand Hall. Um, and she's actually done a, a second one as well, I think, on the construction. So they're both I think you can get hold of those through Sand's website. I'll just read you a part that Chris Sitka, who was one of the early residents, said. Of course it was always a dream, but we had created the chance for us to live our dream, a feminist utopia. Yes, we brought within us the damage that oppression causes. We acted out our wounds and dysfunctions. We argued and fought. Some felt frustrated that a functioning farm was so elusive in this melee. We argued endlessly about issues such as men, meat, machines, drugs, plastic and domestic animals. There were disruptive relationships and friendship breakdowns. Despite all that, we formed a tightly knit alternative society, a kind of extended family which suckered us when our families of origin rejected or criticised us for the crime of lesbianism. We formed powerful bonds with each other. Living in a challenging physical environment, we were dependent on each other and we often had to pull together despite our differences. And even so, she, we got to know each other in a deeply elemental way that never happens with those we only meet for coffee in a city cafe. We became family to each other. So I'll just finish on that. I think that's a really nice note for us to turn over to questions now. Um, and I hope you've got some for our panel. Just before we do that, um, so if we can put the house lights on now. And uh, as I said, there'll be mics in the aisles, so if you could make your way over to that. While you're doing that, we're going to listen to a, few, a couple of voices from the mountain, Sand Hall and Mei Ling. I see it as, as facing fears and fantasies. You know, greatest fears, greatest fantasies. <laughs> you know, the whole girl's own adventure. And then the practicality of dealing with the weather and um, if you did hurt yourself. Because you go through a bit of a sense of an initiation at times, either from the environment or by living with the other women. I'd arrived on the mountain with two suitcases and one was full of high heel shoes and dresses and the other one was full of LP records. And that's fact. I'd never lived in the bush, I had no skills. But by the time I left, we all learnt carpentry, gardening, mm. bush skills, you know. I think it's only in hindsight now that I'm an older woman that I recognise the incredible 
gifts that were given to me and how strong it made me. Thank you. Um, yeah, so make your way to the mics if you have some, a question or you can also submit them online with Slido. I've got one here that I'll start with. I'm sorry, I can't really... Oh, yes, oh, good, someone's oh, making that. Yes. Um, could anyone join the community? This is the Could question. anyone join? And women also, were women allowed to bring their sons? Did anyone have children whilst living at Amazon Acres? Whilst living there. So, anyone, any woman could join. Any woman could join. It was um, the women of the world, really. It was the women of Australia, primarily. Um, so, women of all kinds came. There were... Look, women with sons, they... Um, to the mountain they brought... There were... Pam Wool brought her son... Um, there were women who brought their sons, and I, in fact, remember during one of our very earliest camps, the first time Morgan came with her mother, Skye, um, and they brought this kid called... What was he called, anyway? He was just a ter terrible, terrible child. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so... Um, but there were, we were not... At the beginning, we were not really... Those of us who were actually there, we were not preventing boys from being around, you know. And all, there was always a split between those of us who had a more, you know, tolerant or flexible view and were not... Certainly not threatened by baby boys um, or even... Oh, I forget his name. What was his name, Morgan? <laughs> Never mind. Perhaps I don't remember that he remains nameless. <laughs> but they weren't anyway, involved. Anyway, it's I think we have a question over here. Yes. Thank you all for sharing your stories. Um, my question was relating to um, just some of the labours that you experienced while you were in the acreage. So you spoke a bit about the physical labour of um, the building and the cooking and those kind of tasks and how you manage that. I was wondering a bit about the psychological labour. So, you know, you've got people coming in from all sorts of backgrounds and experiences and, you know, people from, from um, like, yeah, the queer community and obviously there would be a lot of emotions involved in everyone's experience. How, how did you manage to create, like, a, a safe space? Like, was just now with the excerpt that was just read out, um, there were some insights into that, but, yeah, what was what was kind of in place for when someone was having a, a moment that we all needed to come together as a community and if, if what was some of the care involved in that with a psychological um, environment? Yeah. Yes. Well, so, yeah. How did you manage when women arrived with, you know, like a lot with of psychological problems? With psychological problems or...? or just I reckon pretty well, really. I mean, we had... We had Mel at the beginning who was really um, off the air, but really not a danger to anyone. Not a danger to anyone. She just locked herself in the hut when the press came that time. And then... <laughs> and we had Merrin. I mean, we looked after Merrin for quite a period. She, you know, I can remember going on the wood trip and she was taking sticks off the truck when we were putting them on and... Not <laughs> So we're, and we're, and there was the woman who it pushed her motorbike though, all the way it? from yeah it was complicated it was complicated though, for yeah. those people it was complicated yeah. with some of those people and it was like you were looking after sometimes you were looking after people who could not look after themselves but I never felt put upon maybe others did I didn't don't remember any real kind of you know full blown uh, you know. Uh, what's it called when you have a total breakdown? Psychosis. Um, anyway, florid breakdowns. I don't remember that happening, but there were a lot of... I mean, we were all a bit dysfunctional to one extent or another. Yep. And then... The <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, alcohol and stuff like that used to... And alcoholics. ...exacerbate a lot of those issues as mm. well. So there was fights a lot of the time. Yeah. But we weren't... I don't know whether... On the mountain, we didn't have any alcohol at all in those initial years that were in the slideshow. There was no alcohol. There might have been a bit of puff, but... Um, <laughs> no. That's, that's usually good for the... You know, it usually doesn't cause you to go out and murder your mum or anything, but... Um, <laughs> but... Um, so... But uh, later on, I mean, as time went on and then there were more lands and there were... And there was uh, more alcohol, mm. and 
and eventually when women had houses of their own, I guess, and then there were... I suppose it's just a... And it all have just, an open-door policy, you're going to get a lot of different women. Endless, endless, and you have yeah, all kinds. I think half the people who... Okay. Takes all kinds to make a utopian. Mm. Um, mm. I've got a question here for Sophie. Um, sorry, I'll come back to this thing. Where is the most successful community you've seen or heard of worldwide? Oh, I think Australia has some of the most yeah. successful uh, communities, just in terms of how they're influenced by a range of social movements and Amazon Acres, the mountain, is, is one of those. I think it's one of the most interesting examples that I keep coming back to that had links with overseas, um, that it's known about overseas more and more. Um, I think also a community in Tasmania and other sort of groups of women that chose each other as their, as their chosen families and are still living as as chosen family to this day and, and carry all that history with them. I think there's so many of those examples in Australia and, um, yeah. Great, mm, really. OK, let's take a question from here. Um, hi. Uh, how did you manage financially? How did you pay for things like petrol and food and building supplies? Um, well, we used to just take up a collection when, some, when we were going to town and... Um, some contributed, others didn't. We brought back the, you know, we brought back what we brought back and, uh, and it was shared equally, irrespective of who put money in. Um, in general, a lot of us were receiving some form of benefit. Mm -hmm. So it was when Whitlam came to power, mm -hmm. um, it was uh, far, far easier to get... Social security benefits than it has since become. It's gradually been eroded. That's something that's been eroded to, to weigh to nothing, nearly. Um, and when you lived up there, and then you put a few checks together, it it was actually it it meant that there was quite it it was adequate. And we grew a beautiful garden. Now the bottom garden, the one that was saved from the frost, there were a few years from about probably through the late second half of the 70s when it was prolific and fabulous. It was just magnificent. And we were, I can remember going down there and picking the Brussels sprouts, you know, month after month after month as they grow up the stalk and, and roasting them with the potatoes. Chickens, <laughs> goats. Like there was yeah, usually a... <laughs> chickens and oh, chickens. goats and or something yeah, like that. We had goats yeah. for a while, so there was milk at some point. But then down in the valley, they had a dairy cow, mm. so there was there was there was milk in the valley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we take, um, um, a question from over here now. Hello, we got one. Someone here. Hi, um, I've actually been up on the lands oh. last year. I was twenty. So I think I'm, like, one of the youngest people to go up in recent years. Um, it was very transformative. I have more of a question about how you feel that um, future generations and I suppose, like, a fourth wave of feminism can fit itself into the lands, um, specifically because at my age, I know <laughs> everyone I've told about this, they've been, like, writing their resignation letters, being like, how do I get up there? <laughs> so I they definitely want in. And they want to know how they can learn the skills to even just build their own communities or be a part of it as bringing in a fourth wave of feminist politics. Into this community, you mean? Into this existing land? or Yeah, into this existing land. So the question is, I think, how do, how do women, young women now get into the lands or start this kind of... How would you suggest they start this kind of community? Well, the ones that I saw, they had they had connected with the the over. I think mainly the overall Australian lesbian community, and um, had heard about it, and who came to one of the gatherings. So um, I don't think uh, you know they, they that would be if you're looking for a, you would have to try and find when one of the gatherings is, and find make friends with someone who's organising it. Okay. Um, <laughs> Um, or, you know, initially they used to just write to me, but um, I'm not really in a position to organise a visit anymore, so... You teach you know. the skills, yeah. And some of them maybe, maybe just have to go and start. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are these older women who could act as mentors, I'm sure, and yeah. be useful in that. Yeah. We, I think, um, just before I take a question from you, I think there's a very good question here. Is there a way we could take the ideals of a women's utopia into our everyday lives without the extremes of a mountaintop acreage. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a lot more comfortable, wouldn't it? <laughs> I think 
think <laughs> I think those those values of sustainability, challenging hierarchies, uh, challenging discrimination in our everyday lives. I think there are so many people dif of different generations trying to do that now and yeah. being these, inclusive. Being inclusive. Um, yeah, taking time to you know share your experiences of you know, of the world of oppression, building each other up. Like, I think that's at the heart of what this experiment did so well at times. So yeah, I think, and for yeah. straight women to, to join that struggle, I think. Yeah. Sorry, we have a question over here. Yeah, this might have just been answered or an expansion of the last question, but I was just curious um, if and what networks between these kind of women, women's lands uh, throughout the world um, exist? What kind of communication channels, if, if any? Um, just on the note of legacy and, um, and building a history around it, but also kind of contemporary activation of them, if there are links between them in the same way that we saw, you know, with the women's marches and the Me Too movement, a lot of those networked kind Next. of activisms was kind of big in this form Wave yeah. movement. Are you aware of that, Sophie? You have any sort of network? You know about that? Sort of I think uh, like co correspondence between some communities in the 70s and 80s with ones overseas, but I think obviously a really different time then to what we've got now with the kind of capacity to connect. But I don't know. Was were you aware of like good connections with back then? Overseas? Back then, the the women of the women who were at Wales, the women who founded Wales, who left afterwards because they were overrun by immense numbers of feral women. Um, <laughs> some from our some from our direction, um, uh, but they. Uh, I was in correspondence with the Wales women for a while, and there was uh, the the Denmark farm. I don't know if these places still exist, but there there was a network then when between the different places. And I know when I know when my friend Trish went to America, she visited places in America in the in the west, in the southwest maybe. So there were. Those connections then. Um, I don't know about now. I can't tell you. Well, here's another question, which I'll do. Were there any Aboriginal women in the group? You said all women were invited, but was that reflected? There were no Aboriginal women in the group in the early days. Uh, later on in the town nearby, there were Aboriginal women involved in just the overall um, women's culture. Community. Yeah. Um, but I don't know whether they wanted to uh, come to <laughs> this kind of a place. I don't know. I really don't know. Afterwards, I think they probably visited. Yes, and in the end, one of those Aboriginal women who um, has since passed away, she lived out in a caravan near where Jono lived um, for quite a number of years with one of the very, very mentally difficult women. Mm. Um, so... It was, but let's. It's. It was fringe. It was tangential, okay. and I don't know. I think because the women's movement itself was, by and large, a white movement, um, uh, but there were there was a certain range of class, but it was probably more than fifty percent middle class too, and so yes. No. Um, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Karen, but we're no, nearly running out of time. On. We've only got a couple of minutes. Can we take another question here? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, everybody on stage. That was a very nostalgic <laughs> trip. Um, I forgot my question. I've got plenty here if you want to um, ask one of these. Okay, two things I wanted to ask you about. I hope you, Karen, particularly, I hope you can talk about this. Um, I'm really, I think that the time when um, the uh, there was some difficulty with a neighbour who insisted on <laughs> stopping access and blowing up the road um, to get up there. I'm wondering if you'd like to comment on that and also the time that the police decided that they should raid the mountain and uh, took some of us away. What was the second bit? The raid. The raid <laughs> by the police. Oh, the raid by the police. So this was due to a, a woman who shall remain nameless growing her crop right on the river where, where the locals forded the river on their horses. So it was always going to come to a bad end and, yes, we were raided. <laughs> we were raided. It was kind of a fun day in a way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It really was. Um, um, in the end, they were there for so many hours that we all made friends in the end. And I think by the time we were at the 
cop shop, we were all practically, you know, best mates. Anyway, thought <laughs> it was a bit trying. That was later. So that's the second bit. So, but the other one about the well, yes, the 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 the, the neighbour who closed the road. Well, she did. She closed. She closed the road. She had at one point a bulldozer that, you know, completely. There were, it wasn't blown up, but it was bulldozed completely out of existence um, over a period, maybe 40, 50 metres gone, uh, and other minor and huge trees, you know. So um, that was a... But we, again, when, you, when we had an external enemy, we worked together like clockwork. We were fantastic. Okay, and, I'd like to thank And in the end, we, <laughs> we had women who did the law, law, law stuff and saw the lawyer and, and got the... Um, and got uh, negotiated with the lands department and all that sort of stuff. And then we had other women who were always home, you know, who were cooking at night. And they, we were we were terrific. We were terrific. They so wore dresses and they looked very conservative. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. And when we went to court. Yeah. Yes. When we went to court. <laughs> we all wore dresses. Uh, we looked absurd. <laughs> no overalls. <laughs> can so I, she, can uh, I... she did you a favour, really. Look, Unfortunately, we've run out of time. I think there's so much more to talk about on this subject. Um, the programs are still on the History Listen website. Just give a little plug there if you want to listen to them under Amazon Acres on Radio National. And that tells a lot of the stories, both others from Karen and from other women who lived uh, there in the time. Um, thank you so much all for coming. I think... You know, there's a lot more we could talk about, but I hope we, we leave with a mix of both sort of dose of realism but also some optimism about maybe getting that energy, that female energy going everywhere, not just on a mountaintop. <laughs> so please thank our panellists. You were a great panel. You were great to be here with. All of you. Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.